chapter 16, amidst a slew of other parables, Jesus gives one parable that I find very challenging. The parable has some questionable morality within it um, and has some confusing teaching for its application. But hopefully we'll be able to deduce the main ideas from it this morning and learn how to apply it properly. The parable is found in the middle section of Luke, which covers from about chapter 13, verse 22, through chapter 17 and verse 10. The dominant theme of this section is found in Luke chapter 13, verses 29, where it says, or where Jesus says, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Now this section of the book of Luke is all about securing eternal destinations, but more specifically, and really what all parables are about, is securing a place in the kingdom. Jesus speaks about the exclusivity of the kingdom, the character of the kingdom, and the immeasurable worth of the kingdom. The section begins with one person asking a very difficult question, one that many still struggle with today. In verse 22, they ask, Lord, are there few who are saved? Jesus answers, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. In chapter 14, we find Jesus at a Sabbath dinner at, one of the, at a house of one of the Pharisees. He teaches a series of three parables summarizing the character of of the kingdom. Jesus contrasts the way the Pharisees conduct themselves with the way the people of his kingdom would. Jesus is not interested in the proud, those who claim the best seats early, the greedy, those who only invite others with the means to repay them, or the lazy. He is interested in those who are humble, who are generous, and who are eager for what he has to offer. He closes this chapter while speaking to the multitude uh, with a very visceral and shocking saying Luke chapter 14 uh, verses 26 to 27 says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple the kingdom of Christ is worth more than anything this life can offer and it will only be filled with those who have counted the cost the cost is your life. Salvation may be free, but it will cost you everything. The kingdom is exclusive. Its character is different than the world's, and its worth is above everything else. In chapter 15, we find three different examples developing this theme of immeasurable worth by showing three examples of lost members and the methods and links to go for uh, seeking restoration. And in chapter 16, in the parable before us today, he will continue on with this same theme of immeasurable worth. Luke chapter 16 and verse 1 says, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now a steward or a manager is just an estate manager. He's much more than a financial advisor in that he has full control over the master's money and is expected to be able to handle it well. This is the same role that Joseph was given by Potiphar in Genesis chapter 39, but unlike Joseph, the steward before us today was not blessed in the same way by God, and he did not handle the money well. Immediately as you hear the first ver verse, your mind should shoot back to the prodigal son, which is directly before this parable. Luke chapter 15 and verse 13, after receiving his inheritance prematurely, uh, the Bible says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, both characters in these parables were given enormous amounts of borrowed wealth 
and both wasted what they were given. Borrowed wealth is a key theme in this parable. The rich man finds out and immediately notifies this manager of his impending termination, but before the manager leaves, the rich man requests a full account. This would just be an updating of the books, likely so the rich man can see just how bad the situation is and so the estate can be handed over to a successor. The manager panics because he says he's not strong enough to dig. That would just be a term for any kind of unskilled manual labor. And he is too ashamed to beg. Well, if I met this fellow, I'd probably think, well, tough luck. You kind of deserve what you got here. But that's not the attitude that he had. And this is where we're going to find the center of the parable. The manager, realizing that judgment is due, is going to formulate an extremely clever plan so he won't be thrown out on the street. Cleverness or shrewdness and desperation are key themes as well. Luke chapter 16, verses 4 through 7, it says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down and quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The steward proceeds to call together several debtors who may need his services in the future. And he tries to do them this favor so that they'll remember him when he needs employment. He takes the debts that these fellows owe the rich man and he starts hacking them down with seemingly no repercussion. At this point in the parable, we run into the question about the morality of the situation because it seems that Jesus is commending this man. Is Jesus really suggesting that we emulate this seeming lack of integrity? Before we answer the question, we need to understand some of the proposed ideas of what's really going on here. Number one, the first idea, the steward is blatantly stealing from the rich man by selling off his debts for less than they're worth. Now, I find this to be unsatisfactory. As we'll soon notice, the rich man is going to end up praising the steward for his cleverness in verse 8. I hardly believe that he would receive any commendation of praise for theft. A more reasonable response would be to take the steward to court, but that's not the rich man's response. Number two, the steward, uh, or the second option, the steward took advantage of the rich man's immorality in the use of what are known as usuries, or simply just charging interest. One commentator makes the case by explaining that under the old law it was illegal for the Jews to charge interest to a fellow Jew. See Exodus chapter 22 verse 25. This commentator says those wishing to evade interest laws would distance themselves from the practice of usury by having stewards write bills in such a way as would incorporate interest in total without showing it. Therefore what we see is a desperate steward rewriting his master's bills to omit the interest thereby securing gratitude of the master's debtors while remaining beyond the legal reach of his master. Because of the clever maneuvering of the steward, the master could not repudiate the steward's actions without convicting himself of taking usury. Now, this argument is better and may be perfectly accurate, but I think it supposes too much that's not specified within the text. The third, and what I believe is the most likely, the steward simply used his authority as the manager to cut down the debt. Now imagine you go to a home improvement store and you're searching for a washing machine. And you find one out on the floor that's got a dent in it. And maybe it's on sale, sale for $500. But you find that dent to take away more of that worth. And you go to the manager and you say, I'd like this washing machine, but I just don't think it's worth $500 because of this 
thing. And the manager says, okay, well, I'll knock down $100 off of that and we'll do $400. Now, is that man stealing from the home improvement store? Is he stealing from his boss? No, he has the authority to be able to do that. And that seems to be what I think is the easiest way to look at this parable. The steward may not have been extremely upright in this moment, but I don't believe he was actually doing anything illegal. But that still leaves the question, is Jesus condoning this behavior? I think the answer becomes apparent at the end of verse 8. After the rich man commends the steward for his shrewdness, Jesus gives the main lesson to take from the parable. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. So the answer is no. Jesus is not condoning the steward, but to focus on that issue is to miss the entirety of the parable. The key point of this parable is that worldly people are more worried about worldly things than children of God are about spiritual things. This is not a lesson on morality. This is a lesson on passion, on zeal, and a desperation to secure a place in Christ's kingdom and ultimately a home with Him in heaven. All the steward can hope for is a stable position of employment. Yet, he is going to do everything in his power to ensure that employment. What do we do to ensure our eternal destiny knowing what lies in store? Knowing the price that's been paid? Shouldn't we show more zeal, more passion, and a more desperate struggle to secure eternal treasures? With the proper perspective, Jesus then gives us instructions on how to focus this energy by use of a proverb. Uh, moving on in verse 9 of Luke chapter 16, it says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now at some point, money and material will fail, but that does not mean we cannot use it properly now. Money finds its most fruitful purpose when it is used to serve God. As the steward used his resources to secure his future home, so must we be good stewards of ours to be accepted into an eternal home. There are many ways that we can use our money to help us in our service to God. The most obvious way being the contribution to help the local congregation in its mission to spread the gospel and the help of Christians in need, but it's certainly not limited to that. We can use our, home, our, our money to help the poor individually. We can use it to make our homes more available for hospitality. We can use it to build up our libraries to develop good Bible study habits. Any way that we can give our money back to God is money well spent. And no matter how poor or how wealthy you may be, the treasures that we have here are nothing compared to those which we are heirs to in heaven. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And that is the perspective of the proverb. Faithfulness with the limited resources here will show that we are ready for the greatest treasures in the world to come. But the opposite is, the true, is true for the poor stewards. Those who use their worldly resources dishonestly 
or those who use dishonest tactics to gather more worldly resources prove that they could never handle the spiritual treasures. Verse 12 is really where all these principles are put into perspective because all the resources we have, all the wealth of unrighteousness, it's all barred. Every bit of it. There is nothing that I or anyone else can claim as our own because all that we have are blessings from God. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2 talks about a woman named Hannah who was barren but was desperate for a child. She begged and pleaded for God to open her womb to the point that she vowed to give that child to the service of God. Now God heard and answered her prayer and she gave birth to a son named Samuel. After he was weaned though, she was true to her vow and gave her richest blessing, the thing that she valued most in this world, right back to God. And that's the mindset to keep when deciding what to do with your resources. Enjoy them. Thank God for them, but ultimately offer them right back to Him. But the love of money often becomes dangerous as it becomes an idol in the place of God. Likely the most recognizable verse of the text Verse 13 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Notice how absolute of a statement this is. God will not allow divided loyalty between him and the world. One commentator points out that it is one thing to gain wealth incidentally, but it is another thing to slavishly pursue it. Jesus deals with us in absolute categories. Jesus promised his disciples the hatred and persecution of the world. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 23. But he also promised his disciples eternal life. John chapter 3 and verse 16. His offer is this. Persecution and hatred of the world and eternal life. Or the love of the world and eternal death. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we've already noticed a few ways in which we can apply lessons from the parable. But before we close, I'd like to challenge you just a little bit more. Number one, how zealous are you for heaven? How desperate are you to serve God here so you can be with him for eternity? What, how much have you grown in the past year and how much do you want to grow in the next year. Number two, what are you using your money for? As the, we enter the new year, think of ways that you can allocate your, way, your wealth in ways to give it back to God. Maybe rather than picking up another car note, moving into the nicer neighborhood, why don't you try to help a young preacher get started? Maybe work on your home in an effort to open it up to the brethren. Maybe help out a struggling friend with a light bill. Use your wealth in a way that shows light, that shows uh, the, the light of Christianity to those around you. And number three, is the money that you have, is the material that you have, is it an idol? And if it is, maybe it's time to change careers. Maybe it's time to try to get a demotion, to get less hours, to make a little less money, to try to refocus where you are in life, what you need, and to try to be that light in the world with your material resources.